Our reading this evening comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is God's word. Thank you, Kathy. When we think about the book of Mark, um, it's an amazing book, really. Um, it's almost like it's different from the other Gospels in that it moves at an incredible pace. And the way to think about it is it's almost like you're reading a cartoon. And you know when you look at a cartoon strip, there's lots and lots of stuff going on visually, but it's not all in writing. And I think the visual bits in Mark go on our mind. So as, as, as we go through it tonight, just bear that in, um, in mind, because actually sometimes you think, oh, not many words there, what's going on? Um, but that's, that's the way we're going to approach it. Um, so when I find the clicker, Jesus, the expected one, that's what we're looking at tonight. And um, we'll be pondering on that. But before we start, let's just pray. Father, we just thank you that as we come to your word, Lord, it's your word. Lord, we thank you for that wonderful song, Speak, O Lord. Lord, thank you for the word that you've given us. Your very own words, Lord, penned by humans, but Lord, breathed by your Holy Spirit. Down through the Old Testament, through the New Testament. And Lord, thank you that throughout, Lord, as we approach scripture, we approach your word. And Lord, we just pray that you would speak into our hearts tonight. Lord, pierce our hearts where we need to respond to you. And Lord, restore and encourage our hearts. Lord, that one day the earth would be filled with your glory. Lord, we bless you now and pray that you would open your word to us, Father, as we look at it tonight. Amen. It's going to start with a story, um, and it's, it's one I heard on the radio a few years ago, um, and we'll see in a little bit why it's relevant, um, but I remember listening to this guy, he was talking, and he talked when he was a child, he, he grew up in a family in Leicester, 
And they weren't a particularly rich family. His dad just worked at the factory. And they had holidays every year in Skegness. Um, I haven't been to Skegness, um, but the way he described it, I might not choose it as my first holiday destination. They grew to know and accept Skegness as where they went on holiday every year. Same things happened, the donkey rides, the ice cream. Nothing changed, but things changed in the neighbourhood around him. People were just doing a little bit better in life, and some of his friends started going on foreign holidays. Nothing changed, though, in his family. They carried on going to Skegness every year. And there'd been one year when it had been a little bit tougher in his dad's job. But surprisingly that year, his dad announced that they were going somewhere special and different on holiday. They were going to Chapelle Saint-Lenard. Sorry, say that again. Chapelle Saint-Lenard. Excitedly, he began to build a picture in his mind. Accordions. French music. Sun. All the things which he hadn't been used to in Skegness. And he told his friends at school, we're going on France to holiday. And this expectation, excitement grew over months and months and months. Come the day of the holiday, they'd all packed the car. And they set off from Leicester, as normal, and drove through Grantham, as normal, and seemed to be driving along familiar roads, as normal. Eventually, after the long drive through Lincolnshire, he began to see signs for Skegness. Imagine how he began to feel. Where his dad was actually taking them was Chapel St. Leonard's. <laughs> and if you look on Google, it's five miles north of Skegness. His dad was telling the truth. And in, in a way, it's funny, isn't it? But in another way, the story's a bit, ooh. And he actually described the disappointment and crushing thing that all he'd expected had actually changed. And it was a bit of a cruel joke on the part of his dad. So let's hold that thought and come back to that later. Tonight we start by looking at the Messiah, the expected one. And at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, we read in verse 1 of Mark's Gospel, Mark just puts it straight there. He tells you what it's going to be about. And I said he tells his story cartoon style. He's got the punchline at the beginning even. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. And actually to the Jews, they knew the deal. They were expecting Messiah. There was absolutely no doubt in their mind who was coming. They had all the verses down. They knew what the verses were going to be. They knew the scriptures and they knew what Messiah was going to be. Let's just take a look at a few of them. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. That was Moses speaking. They knew they were expecting one like Moses. One who was God's leader, God's man, would speak God's word. And as well, they knew from Scripture he was going to be a prophet like Elijah as well. We could look at Scriptures like that. So they knew who they were expecting. Look at Ezekiel. They knew who Messiah was going to be and they accepted this. My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. 
David, the king who got it right. David, God's man. They were going to have a king like that. They were expecting that. No doubt in their mind. They knew what Messiah was going to be. And actually, didn't that become all the more poignant as the Romans arrived? And they'd been struggling under Roman authority to expect a king. What was he going to be? He was going to be their deliverer. They were certain of that. Absolutely no doubt in their mind. Look forward to Micah. And they knew where he was going to come from. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times, all the way down through the scriptures since the time of David. King David's only son, King David, one like David was promised. He was going to be Messiah. They knew he was coming from Bethlehem. That's amazing. They had scripture buttoned up. They knew what to expect. They knew that Messiah was coming. So how did we end up where we ended up last week? That wasn't how the passage ended up last week. I'm going to drop this on Kathy now. Let's let's just take a look around at um, chapter 3 of Mark. And Cathy, could you just read from verse 5 to the end of verse 6? He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So Jesus wasn't what they expected. If he was what they expected, they certainly wouldn't have been doing that. He didn't match up to their expectations. That's pretty bleak, isn't it? You've been expecting the expected one, and he doesn't match your expectations. And the Pharisees, they wanted to murder him. He couldn't, he couldn't be the Messiah. He was claiming to be God. He was forgiving sins. All the things that had been winding them up over the previous chapters just boiled over at that moment. He broke the Sabbath. How could he be like Moses if he had just gone and broken the Sabbath? And by the way, he came from Galilee, so that immediately disqualified him. They were certain, they knew. And he wasn't the expected one. Therefore, simple formula, reject him. So as we move into the passages tonight, we've got scene one and scene two, which we're going to look at. Two very short scenes. And let's see what happens next. So Kathy, could you read? um, Let's go verse seven to twelve. Scene one. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea. Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowds, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! 
but he gave them strict orders not to tell the others about him. So that's scene one. Kathy's read it. That's it in pictorial summary. But we start just with an interesting bit on that. Jesus withdrew. That was the first unexpected thing that he did. He'd withdrawn from the previous scene. God had left that previous scene. The people had rejected him. What we might have expected Jesus to do, what should he have done if someone had rejected him? But he withdraws quietly and goes to a lake. So what happened? We see that crowds flock to him. We see that they press in to touch him, to be close to him. They come from a wide area. They, they were desperate to see Jesus. They wanted to get some of the reaction. We see that today with the way people sometimes go to what's the latest thing happening in the church that we can get on board with. Let's go and have a piece of the action. It's the way people behave. They want to see God move. They want to see what's going on. They want to see God at work. And he's working. He's setting people free. He's healing. He's casting out demons. And then even the demons acknowledge him. That's amazing. That's just what you'd expect. Or is it? Why wasn't Jesus a crowd pleaser? What did he do? He withdrew. He just drew back. He'd already withdrawn from the, from the people who were plotting to kill him. But now he just steps back a bit from the crowd. Gets on a boat. And actually Jesus is in charge of the crowd. And we actually see that elsewhere. Think about, perhaps think about some other ones in your mind. Where do you see Jesus just doing unusual things with the crowd? Perhaps when they were trying to push him off a cliff. And it just said he walked through the crowd. That was unexpected. One of the ones that I absolutely love is the story with the woman who had been bleeding. And he's got a crowd pressing in on him. And then just something amazing happens. This desperate woman touches him, hoping that he'll be healed. And instantly he knows. Jesus isn't being pushed around by a crowd. Isn't this like the Son of God? Wouldn't he be able to control the crowds? Just amazing. And then just in that same account when he'd done with the woman who had been bleeding, then he goes to Jairus' house. If you want to prove a miracle, what do you need? Witnesses. You need as many witnesses as possible. And what does he do? Puts them out of the room. And it's just mum and dad and the daughter. Barely enough to verify it. But Jesus is in charge. It's completely unexpected. And then what about the evil spirits, the unclean spirits? That's a bit odd, isn't it? They're just telling everyone who the Son of God is. Just what you'd expect. Why does Jesus silence them? To be honest, people would have probably lots of opinions about that. Maybe in here we capture some of the glimpses of the mystery of God's will. We see throughout the Gospels that he was, even when he was preaching parables, he was preaching mysteries. 
They weren't ones just to make the gospel easy to understand. It was for people that God was calling to himself that he was seeking. So maybe even in this bit, we've got the mystery of free will versus God's sovereign will and the fact that he calls us to himself. Why would then he silence the evil spirits? Maybe they just wanted to take away the mystery of God and just say, look, everyone, this is who it is. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to come in faith. We've told you. And actually, Jesus is stopping them doing that. He's actually revealing himself in his way. He's in charge. How unexpected. How amazing. How mysterious. So how about moving to scene two now? And again, I'm going to ask Kathy to read verses 13 to 19. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So in this scene, it doesn't appear to be a lot to go on, does it? Disciples doing some miracles because Jesus told them to, and a list of names, and that's it. Not a lot to go on there. But actually, let's look at it in the same way, with the same mystery. So we've got the scene set, we've got the mountains now, the background, we've gone from the lake, we're by the mountain, on the mountain. We've got Jesus, and we've got him calling the disciples. Then he commissions them to go and do, serve him. Be like him, follow him, do his work. So they go out and do his works. They do exactly the same as he's been doing. They're preaching the gospel. They're healing the sick. They're driving out demons. Doing exactly what Jesus told him. Then there's the list of names. And then there's just a little bit of a shadow at the end of the passage. So we had the, quite a big shadow at the end of the previous week. Here we've just got a little, little shadow at the end of this one. So what's unexpected about this? Jesus calling them the most unlikely of disciples. And we can see as we read the gospel that even come when Jesus had gone into heaven, they really quite weren't ready for things. They they really weren't ready to be building the church, serving him. So actually ill prepared as they are at this stage, he immediately sends them out to do everything that he's commanded them. That's a bit unexpected, isn't it? We'd have actually sent them off to college. They'd have probably been there for three years, just long enough to kind of knock all the enthusiasm out of them. And then we'd have probably eased them in gently over a period of time. We wouldn't let them do too much, just in case they got a bit conceited. And actually, Jesus has immediately turfed them out on their own. Just go and do do the work. Sends them out in twos or threes. That's the only backup plan. Off you go. Doesn't that seem a bit unlikely? Doesn't that seem a bit unexpected? But that's the way Jesus works. And we often see that. We see things when we're so ill-prepared. We've seen this in our own church. When a new ministry starts, um, things like with the addicts, we, 
Lord, what are you doing? We, we, you know, how do, we, how do we get our heads around this? How do we support this? What do we do next? It's the way Jesus works. And actually, we're totally cast on him when that happens. It's the unexpected way that God works in our lives. But then we look at the list of names as well. Unexpectedly, he called the most unlikely group of disciples he could have called. There were political extremists, slightly dodgy and corrupt people, tax collectors. They weren't exactly your kind of dream team, were they? If you were planning who you'd have building your church, would you have chosen who God chose, who Jesus chose? Probably not. But he knew what he was doing. And just imagine how excited the disciples would be that is this the Messiah? We've seen his miracles. We've been doing the miracles. Just imagine if he can heal the lame, if he's got authority over the powers of evil, might he just be able to restore the nation of Israel? Might he just be able to do that? Could you feel their hope building? Just think of the excitement. Just think what they were expecting. And then we read. And Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. There's a shadow at the end of the passage. It's not likely to all go well. And then if we think of Judas who betrayed him, what about the others? What about Peter? He was going to stay faithful to the end. Who denied him? What about Thomas, who couldn't believe the good news? He doubted him. What about James and John? Right and left hand man. Like the other disciples, they deserted him. What had gone wrong? What would go wrong? They'd seen Jesus walk through crowds. They'd seen Jesus speak with authority. As they moved towards Jerusalem, they saw Jesus run rings around the religious authorities. (coughs) And then he cast himself on the mercy of the crowds. He was no longer walking through the crowds. They were baying for his blood. He was no longer running rings around the religious authorities. They were condemning him to death. Imagine their disappointment. Was he what they expected? He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And how do we feel? But we've come to know, we've come to accept that Jesus is Lord. But is he always our expected Messiah? Has he done everything that we wanted? Has he restored Israel? Has he restored our lives in the way that we expected? 
what's our model of Messiah, how he should be? What about the deepest pain in our lives? The prayer that didn't go answered. The injustice that we see in the world. The disappointment of not having what we thought God would give us. Can we be like the disciples as well? Where they were shaken to the very core when their model of Messiah didn't materialize. I know in my own life, there'd be moments where you think, actually, I was sure this was right. I remember going for a job once, and I wasn't even going to mention this um, this evening. I went for a job. I fully expected to get that job. And I just remember going into work and thinking they're going to announce that they'd given me the job, and they didn't. And I just went out, and I, I fortunately I had a company car. I was able to drive away into a lay-by somewhere and weep bitterly. Simple as that. I prayed for that in faith, and I was sure that's what God was giving me. And actually, it wasn't. It wasn't anything like what he was giving me. And nothing easy about it turned up for the next few years. The next road down that that company proved to be painful. And it took years to move away from it. And that was a painful disappointment. And ultimately, I would have said, I'm trusting God. No, I know, I know, I know he's got it all in his hands. But actually, when things are unexpected, is it easy to reject But actually what what the Messiah was, is, is the unexpected one who we need to accept. We need to accept his whatever he's doing and the unexpected way he's working. What I was just going to get Kathy to do was to go back to Isaiah 53 and read the whole lot. Because actually what the Jews and what we'd often done ourselves is we read the bits of scripture the promises that are great promise boxes snippets of scripture that you can actually draw on in times of crisis but actually when you read the whole thing there's a whole lot more in there so let's just hear Isaiah just back end of 52 yeah that'd be great beginning at Isaiah 52 verse 13 see my servant will act wisely He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, 
and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's the whole picture, isn't it? It wasn't the Messiah they expected. They had focused on certain verses and they could only see a ruler and a king. They couldn't see one who would give up his life for us, who would do everything for us. And actually in the same way, um, I was really touched by the illustration that Saab used this morning of the tapestry. So often we look at the back, the mess of our lives, and we say God's doing nothing beautiful here. And actually he's working on the other side. And he's something, producing something beautiful. That's Messiah. That's good news. That's the gospel. So going back to where we started, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. He's not the Messiah in the promise box, but he's the Messiah bursting out of every verse, every part of scripture. When you understand that, when Jesus began to open up scriptures to people after his death and explain, didn't he burst out of every part of scripture? Doesn't the whole of scripture point to Messiah? Doesn't it point to the good news about Jesus? Isn't that who we're looking to? The one who can actually deal with searing pain in our life, with loss, with disappointment, with sadness, with grief, with sorrow, with fear, with uncertainty, whatever, he can deal with it because he's 
He's the king of the universe. He's not just going to come to restore one little bit. And so often we live our lives as though accepting that our house has changed landlords. And actually, the house has changed. It's amazing, but there's still things wrong. The fence is still broken down and next door neighbor's dog comes in and terrorizes. There's still a dripping tap. There's still one room in the house where the mold keeps coming through the wall. And actually Jesus knocks on the door and we give him a to-do list. And actually he's come to announce that he's preparing a place for us. And that's the wonderful thing about the gospel. Isn't that amazing? So I was just going to finish with um, a verse from Hebrews chapter 12. Let's just read this. Chapter 12 verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What good news. Amen. Nigel, thank you uh, so much indeed uh, for that really, really powerful reminder. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace.